Amen. Uh, kids are dismissed at this time. As we mentioned, we're going to be talking about lust this morning, and so uh, if we have extra kids that need to be dismissed out this way, uh, they're more than welcome to. We've been in a, a conversation entitled Without Borders, and um, it's definitely an ambitious task to find a way in which maybe somehow we could cut down the borders that are between us and God. And even as a pastor, as someone who's supposed to be a professional Christian, I guess, um, every day I struggle with, with borders, that things in my life that make God's presence and closeness farther from me than it should. And as a believer in Jesus, it is my constant goal to, um, to tear down those borders and to take the things in my life that have maybe run amok and to begin to surrender, surrender them to Jesus that ultimately I could be close to God because here at Wadok, the way we describe holiness, it's like a churchy kind of religious sounding word, but we see holiness as, as closeness to God. Holiness is, is, is proper action, it's, it's proper conduct, but we don't just do proper conduct because we're just supposed to do it. Ultimately, God wants us to come so close to him. And, and the way that we do that is we begin to live like God and act like him because God is perfect and holy and just. And so the more that we are perfect and holy and just in God's power, the more that we are close to him, the better that we can hear his voice in our lives. And today we come to like maybe the toughest border for some of you in this room. It's a word called lust. It's a word that plagues our, our world, um, specifically with the advent of the internet. It's just become maybe the most accessible sin in the history of the world. But I want to tell you something this morning, because if we don't start right here in this moment, then, then we're not going to have any victory this morning. I have experienced the power in my life personally of coming to God's grace and overcoming sin. And you can defeat lust in your life. It sometimes feels like the most hopeless battle because it's such a continuous battle. It's, it's the reason why the sermon's called Looks Kill. Because they say lust is not the first look, it's the second look. Amen? But we can beat this this morning. And even as we're singing music to begin our service, really what we're doing is we're declaring war on the enemy on our lives. That God, the enemy is trying to discourage my faith. He's trying to confuse me. He's trying to make me apathetic. He's trying to make me angry. He's trying to make me a lustful being that can't be faithful to my spouse. But in you, I can be faithful. And in you, I can have victory and I can experience the peace that comes when I choose to take my sexuality and submit it to God's way that ultimately I would be closer to him in the process. Not so I can be better than anybody else. The way that you choose to do your sexuality has nothing to do with you being better than anybody else or superior to anybody else's lifestyle, but it has everything to do with us being close to the God who loves us and who made us. 
And before we start this journey this morning, you need to know this. We can do this because God is powerful. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. I want to examine the darkness this morning, and I want to provide hope. I'm really excited to walk through this with you today. Let's stand together um, in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Matthew 5, starting verse 27 through verse 30. We're just going to read four verses this morning. These are the words of Jesus. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go in to hell. May God bless this word. You may be seated at this time. I know this sounds crazy, but give me a chance this morning, okay? Verse 27, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And the reason why Jesus says this is because as we've talked about, everything that we're, we're discussing, we're, last week we talked about anger, and this week we're talking about lust, and then we're going to talk about retaliation, these specific topics. All of these things are read in the context of Matthew 5, 17 through 20, which said that Jesus essentially came to fulfill what God created in the very beginning. He's not doing something new. He's fulfilling what God had already intended to happen in the world. God created a world. We sinned. The world went into evil and darkness. And now Christ has come to bring the light back into the world. He's come to redeem people and places and things like sexuality. He's come to give us hope and happiness and light. And he's telling us the path that we need to take to get there. And so he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And what he is saying is, from the beginning, God created this wonderful thing called sex that is good and, and pleasing and perfect in God's eyes. And he created this thing to be carried out in a marital covenant of a man and a woman who express their love and devotion for one another in a committed relationship where they don't have to worry about not being good enough in some way for their partner. You see, we're not just called to be naked physically with our spouse. We're called to be naked spiritually and emotionally. We're, we're, we're called to be in a marriage and to open up with one another and to be vulnerable and to be seen for what we really are and not for this fake image that we often want to portray. And he says the same thing was intended for our, for our sex, is that we were, we were intended to enjoy this with our spouse from the very beginning. In Exodus twenty fourteen, the Ten Commandments, which all of you know, I'm sure, it basically says, don't sleep with someone else's spouse, is basically what it says, right? You want to get into a lot of trouble really quickly. If you sleep with someone else's spouse, that's sure to happen, right? Don't do that. It hurts you. It's bad for you. It's bad for them. And so it begins with the obvious idea that we know that we were called to not commit adultery. But then it gets crazy in verse 28. It, it seems to get impossible, in verse 28, Jesus says, talking to just 
random guys and girls. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is the great sexually humbling verse, isn't it? You see, we as humans have a tendency to make ourselves better than other people. We're always trying to have a leg up on people, even spiritually. And the church, we're just broken people trying to do the same thing, but spiritually. Whether you're in a work environment or even in your family or in church, we're always trying to find ways that I'm better than other people. And I want you to know this, church, as I stand up here, I don't think I'm better than anybody in this room. I'm just as messed up as you are. I'm trying to grow just as much as you are. And the reason why I say that is because you can read the first verse, and, and a, a lot of people in life, not everybody, but a lot of people in life can go through their life and they can never have an affair. And then some people who go through their lives and never have affairs, there's, there's a tendency to begin to look down on people who have had affairs, who have slept with somebody else's spouse. There's a tendency for us to divide ourselves based upon our works. And then Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's the good news. That puts us all in the same boat together, right? Like, don't feel bad this morning. We're all in this together. We all struggle with this. Every man in this room and every woman in this room struggles with this. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what Jesus says is that lust is essentially hidden adultery. Lust is hidden adultery. When you look on somebody lustfully who is not your, your marital spouse, Jesus says we are committing adultery in our hearts. Now let me clarify, there's a difference between temptation and lust, right? Temptation is an opportunity to lust. You can't help what comes before your eyes sometimes. You can't help those things. I, I've heard it said that lust is the second look, and I think that's somewhat of a good way to think about it. It's entertaining an idea. It's taking the enemy up on the opportunity to look lustfully at somebody. It's making the decision to go to a certain website. It's making a decision to flirt with somebody who you find attractive, who God has not given to you. There is no sin in temptation, but there is sin in lust. And the way I see it, lust is kind of like the fast food of sex, right? Like it's quick, fast, cheap, and bad for you, right? That, that's what it is. I'm on a health kick right now, as many of you know, and so I'm... Every spiritual analogy always goes back to exercising and eating well. And it's a great analogy. It's so comparative. And let's also be honest here. I think Jesus understands where we're at. Today is probably the toughest time in the history of humanity, maybe, to not lust. Okay? Um, the most popular movie that's coming out, the most anticipated movie of the year, is called Fifty Shades of Grey. You heard about this? And, and I don't know too much about that movie. I'm, I'm not a fiction reader kind of guy. But I'm going to read you the plot of Fifty Shades of Grey, the most anticipated movie of the year. This is the movie that everyone's raving about. And we find ourselves trying to, 
to follow Jesus' command in this kind of world. It says, Fifty Shades of Grey is is the story of a college student, Anastasia, who begins a relationship with a 27-year-old, very successful and powerful businessman, Christian Grey, after interviewing him for her college newspaper. Sounds pretty good so far. Anna loses her virginity to Christian, and he wants her to sign a non-disclosure agreement and a contract that keeps their relationship purely sexual and defines how their relationship will be one of dominance and submission. The novel plays on the tension over the nature of their relationship and the possibility of romance and love, as well as Anna's sexual explorations. Fifty Shades of Grey, it sold 100 million copies. It's been translated into 52 languages. The author E.L. James was described as one of the 10 most fascinating people in the world. Time called her at one point the most influential person in the world. Publisher Weekly gave her the title of Person of the Year. And you see those images all the time. And it's so hard to, to not be tempted to, to entertain those thoughts. And I'll be honest, it's, it's not a sin to watch a movie. It's not a sin to, uh, technically, I mean, you could even say even to watch pornography, but it is a sin to lust. And if those things lead you to lust, which I feel like that's pretty obvious, then, then we're leading ourselves astray. And I'll put it this way. You can eat a Big Mac in a nice, fancy restaurant. You can have it served on a nice platter brought out by a really nice waiter, and you're still eating a Big Mac, right? And no matter how you dress these things up, it can be with a phenomenal soundtrack, it can be with great attractive actors, it can be with phenomenal screenplay, it can be with the best directors in the world, it can have the best marketing on television and internet in the world, but what is at the core of what we're consuming? Oftentimes in our culture, it's just dressed up lust that leads our hearts astray. And that's not even to mention pornography. I remember being in the fourth grade and and my friends telling me about the stuff they were watching. Fourth grade. I went to public school, so maybe it was a little later for some of you, but fourth grade. And and here's the the beautiful thing. I told you, I did my thesis on the internet and how it's changed the church. And, And even when it comes to issues like this, used to when you wanted to buy an adult film or an adult magazine, you had to get in your car, you had to drive down to the local place, and it was a shady place, and you had to go in, you had to walk in, you had to kind of do the walk of shame, you had to go buy something, you had to go to the counter. It usually costs a lot of money, and you had to purchase it, bring it back to your house, and you could hide it somewhere because you didn't want people to see it. And if you wanted to watch it, you had to maybe put it in the VCR or do something like that. And yet now with the internet, it's just so easy. We can access pornography anywhere at any time. And statistics would say that the majority of men in this room struggle with pornography. We're the church, we're no better than anybody else. But porn is simply sugar-coated poison. It's sugar-coated poison. It destroys your marriage. I do this for a living. I talk with guys who tell me the things that are going on, and I can't tell you how many times sexual deviation began with pornography. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I can't even think of a certain person who didn't struggle with that who, when they, like when they, so you had an affair, do you struggle with this? Yes. Every time. 
And what it does is it, it, it taints our, our, our version of what real life is like. And we consume the professionals, and so now our, our spouse no longer looks attractive to us. And girls, it's the same way. They watch Twilight and all these perfect guys, and then none of us match up to, what's the vampire's name? Yeah, that guy, Colin. None of us match up. Because he's too awesome. And he's too attractive. He's too handsome. He says all the right words. And I'm struggling what to do on date night constantly, you know. We went ice, we went ice skating last week. That was pretty good. It was pretty good. But it's not Edward Cullen, you know. And we watch these things on television, and it, and it perverts our understanding of, of reality. I had a, a sociology professor in college who said that, um, and I, wanna, I like playing video games. I'm not going against video games. I had a sociology uh, professor in college who said that she had done studies that directly related the more video games somebody plays, the less likely they are to function properly in reality. Because we get sucked up in this alternate reality where we're really good at something, and then regular reality in the real world doesn't seem as good. Because we're not a champion there. And eventually what can happen is, is we get real reality and like media, video game reality kind of mixed up. And we'd rather just live in this reality because I'm better at this reality than this reality. And when this reality, the real world is not going well, I retreat into this place where I'm really good. And then our human relationships begin to deteriorate. And then Jesus calls us to do this like crazy thing of like not even lusting. Most guys are like, I'm lucky not to put my hands on somebody. And you're telling me like, if I do this? And most guys, they look at this and they're like, it's absolutely impossible. If lust is hidden adultery, then I'm just going to be a hidden adulterer my entire life. There's nothing I can do about it. I saw a really cool article on the Houston Chronicle this week. It was called The Story of Carter's Folly. You ever heard this? The Story of Carter's Folly. And back in 1910, there was a man named Samuel Carter. And he had this idea back in 1910 to build the tallest building in the history of the state of Texas. Okay? And it was going to be a whopping 16 stories high. Tallest building in Texas. I've seen it in Holiday Inns taller than this building, but he was going to create it. And he was a famous lumberjack who made his living that way. And so it was going to feature his famous wood. And so he built this perfect building in downtown Houston. You can still go there today, 806 Main Street. And they built this building, and it was 16 stories high. And it became more so known for its stone columns and its beautiful brick architecture work more than the wood. But they opened it up, and it was referred by some architects as the finest building south of the Ohio River. And they opened it up, and they were so excited about it. It was 16 stories of, of amazingness, and for a while it was the tallest building in the state of Texas. And they began promoting it and telling people about it. And all of a sudden, it became known as Carter's Folly. Everybody began referring to him as Carter's Folly, as if they had made a mistake or if something had gone wrong. And they couldn't figure out, why is everybody saying that, that this is Carter's Folly? They began to get concerned about it. They thought, well, maybe some guy didn't nail it, something in all the way. Maybe it's going to fall apart. Maybe the Freemasons got a hold of it. Maybe there's some conspiracy. Why is everybody calling this perfect structure, to our knowledge, a folly or a mistake? And so Carter, with all of his money, began kind of looking into it. 
Why are they calling this Carter's Folly? And they finally got to the bottom of it. And the reason, it's going to blow your mind. Actually, it's not. The reason why everyone kept referring to it as Carter's Folly was because apparently back in 1910, the people in the city of Houston, our city, just could not fathom that a 16-story building wouldn't fall over. That was all there was. They thought, well, surely when the first storm comes, it's going to blow it over, right? There's no way. And, and when you think about it, I know we laugh at that, but, but think about if you had never seen a building like that. If most people lived in one-story homes, and then you see a 16-story building, I have a fear of heights. I would have probably thought that it was impossible And I love that story because what it tells you is that oftentimes the impossible is simply the untried. Often the impossible is the untried. Often what we think is impossible is simply the unfamiliar to us. What we think is impossible is something that we've never really attempted to do fully. We've just accepted the way that our life is. We've just accepted the norms of the day. And if that idea had prevailed downtowns wouldn't exist today. There'd be none of those big old buildings. And 105 years later, it's still standing. It's a JW Marriott, 806 Main Street. You can go there. It's probably too expensive for you to stay in, but you can go outside and look at it. And I think sometimes, like, I'll be honest, when I read Jesus' words here, I think maybe this is Jesus' folly. Because it seems impossible to us to never lust. And I think the answer is found in, in verse 29. Uh, and this is where it gets really, really crazy, right? Because after he calls us to this, this pattern of life, this way of doing things, this, to, to not use hidden adultery in your heart, to, to, to rid yourself of that, he says, verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And... Personally, I don't think he means that literally because if you're a guy, you know, if you cut off your right hand, you're going to lust within your left hand. And if you cut off your left hand, you're going to lust with your foot, okay? We'll, fit, we'll find a way. There was actually a guy who took this seriously and castrated himself, uh, an early church father, um, and then he still reported to lust because it was still in his mind. And I think what Jesus says here is that lust is overcome by creating a path of holiness. You see, what he says here is that lust leads your entire being into darkness, your, your mind and your body and your soul. And, and what Jesus says is he says you have to proactively address these things and you have to create a brand new path in your life. Now, I did some, some looking into this this week and it is fascinating the neuroscience that they're finding on, on lust. And what they say is um, you begin to create a pathway in your brain based upon the certain kinds of behavior you have. And this is for anything you do. So for any sin you struggle with, for any, for any good thing you want to accomplish, it all pretty much works the same way. And so even if you don't struggle with lust, you're like, I'm a little bit past that stage in my life. What I'm about to say, I believe, applies to anything that you do. Uh, I was, uh, went on a, a run with my wife a week ago, and um, we were in T.C. Jester Park, and we were going down this, um, 
this like a concrete path that had been paved, right? And we were, we were going across this concrete path and I looked over and right across the bayou, I noticed that there was like this dirt path that had been created. And when I was growing up in this neighborhood, I would go there before the concrete path was there. That was where everybody would run. They'd run in this dirt path. And so many people ran the same place so many times in the same direction, in the same place, that eventually the grass faded away and this, this clear path was formed. And what neuroscience says is that your brain works the same way. The more you do a certain behavior, the more likely you are to then do a certain behavior. And so if you're trying to exercise more, it's hard at first because you haven't created the path in your brain. You haven't created uh, the reinforcement for it. That's why it's hard to start something. But the more you do of whatever behavior you do, the more you will desire to do it. And this is why lust is ultimately a lie, because lust says that it will relieve your desire to lust, when in reality it just creates more of a desire to ultimately lust. Pornography does not relieve your desire to lust, it increases your desire to lust. And so what happens is, is you have to create a new path of holiness. You create a, a new path by, it's like, it's like if you were walking in this forest and you knew that this one path was going to ultimately lead to death every single time. You would have to then step over and create a new path. But the grass would be high and there would be thorns and you'd have to walk over it enough times to the point where this became the path that you would naturally choose. And it is hard because when you're walking a new path, all of a sudden it becomes tempting to go to the other path. And they say that whenever, whenever we lust, it releases dopamine in our brains. And what happens is your tolerance is increased and then you can do more of it. And what happens is eventually your brain just kind of goes natural path based upon if it sees a trigger. They compare it to cocaine and heroin in terms of the way that it changes your brain. It's kind of ironic. And then you read verses like Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind. And the hope this morning is that in Jesus, we can create a path of holiness, of righteousness, of proper behavior that brings us close to God. The same way that we get into these things, it's the same way that we get out of them. You get addicted to something through repetition and you escape it through repetition. I've, I've experienced this in my own life. When you, when you feel those thoughts into your brain, I know it's tough, but you just don't entertain them. You just, you just kind of say, okay, yeah, I'm not going that way, I'm going somewhere else. And then slowly but surely, it gets easier and easier and easier because, because literally the Holy Spirit is molding your heart. He's molding your brain. He's molding your body to be more and more like him. That's why Jesus says, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. He's talking about whatever you need to do. Like, like take these acts that get you to where you need to go. And I love this. In Second Peter, I want you to hear this. He's writing to this church and they're trying to kind of leave their former ways in the past and become new people in Christ Jesus. And he says in 2 Peter, he says, referring about God, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain life and godliness. So his power in our lives has given us the ability to be godly and to find life. He says, through knowledge of him who has called us into his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So it says, through God's power, you can be a part of the divine nature, and you can leave the corruptions of this world. And this is how he says to do it. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. It's a path. And virtue with knowledge. It's a path. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness within godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a path. It's a creation. It's a new way of thinking. It's repetition based upon what Jesus has done in your life. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the problem, right? That we know something, yet we don't do it. I, like, that's what's so intriguing about this topic is you've heard this before. And I've heard this before. And yet I still struggle with it on a daily basis. And so he's talking to people who know something and yet they're not finding victory. They know something and yet it's not really translating to their actions. It's a path. And it's a path that stems from who you are. I'm going to close with this. I've read this verse this week, and it encouraged me so much. There was a time when God's people, Israel, were um, far away from him. They were living their own life, doing their own thing. Everything was falling apart. And he says something so profound to them that is so so strong that it literally begins to change. And God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to Israel. And as they're walking away, as God's like, why are you living this way? Why are you doing these things? He looks at them and he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You are not a lustful person anymore. If you believe in Christ Jesus, you are clean and holy and pure. You are white as snow. You are a different person. You are transformed. You are brand new. You are not a creepy, lustful person. You are made new. God says, you are mine. You're not that person anymore. And if we can realize that, if we can realize who we belong to, we can begin to live the ways that we know that we need to. But the problem is we believe we are that person. We believe we are that depraved person. We believe that we're a horrible person and yet God has made you wonderful and beautiful and perfect in his eyes through the cross when Jesus died to take away all of your sin, to rise again, that when you believe in him, then you rise again and now you have faith and you're a new person and you belong to Jesus and so you don't belong to pornography anymore. 
Do you know this? Do you believe this? You don't belong to lust. You don't belong to wandering eyes. You don't belong to that other person that you have your eye on. You don't belong to that stuff because you belong to Jesus and you were holy and you were pure. And if you can see this and if you can give yourself to it, you can create a new path that leads you from whatever you do. I have talked to so many people. There is nothing in Jesus that you cannot overcome. I have friends. I have people who I know have overcome these things. And that can be everybody. It can be you. It can be me. If we're willing to create a path of holiness. Why do you are his? And that path at T.C. Jester that I was telling you about that goes down the bayou. Ever since that concrete was paved, I've watched it for the past two years since I've lived in the neighborhood, and it's slowly but surely being covered up because no one takes that path anymore because they don't need to because they've got this path, and there's grass springing up in the dirt. It's being covered up And in a few years, you will have never even known that it was there. And that can be you and me with whatever we struggle with. Let us not hide our adultery through lust in our hearts. Let's create a new path. Let's be faithful to our spouses. Let's be be sexually pure. Because it's so much better when you're close to God. And before I pray, uh, we're going to come and take the Lord's Supper. And, and we're going to sing a couple songs in response to this. Um, and as we come to the table, what this represents is Christ's faithfulness to us. To love us and to die for us and to bring us into a new life with him. And our response as Christians, as we look upon and consume his faithfulness to us through the cracker, which represents his broken body, and the juice, which represents his shed blood, we reflect upon our desire to be faithful to him in everything that we do. When we come forward, as we're literally walking, I want you to envision yourself literally creating a new path in your life, walking away from the chains and walking into new life. And when you take communion, you can take it on your own whenever you feel led. Um, I'm not going to lead you in that. I want you to come forward and take this, and then I want us to sing these last couple songs in response to Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, we confess that... um, None of this is possible without your spirit empowering us, God. And Lord, we know that this can be kind of a heavy idea, a heavy topic, because it's just so real in our lives. And and we don't like to confront it. We'd rather just kind of ignore it. But God, we know that you are calling us to live without borders. You're calling us to examine our lives and find ways in which we can honor you more through obedience and surrender. And so God, we thank you during this time for your faithfulness to us. 
We thank you that the, the, the juice and the broken cracker represents so much that you've given to us. I pray that as we consume these elements and as we sing in response to what you've done for us, that we confess that we are yours. The chains are broken. We can run from our former ways and we can be new this morning. I ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this time, would you stand with us?